Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. In February, PJM Interconnection, which is the largest wholesale electricity market in the U.S., published a report that points to the very real possibility that electricity supply in the market could fall short of the level needed for reliable grid operation in just five years. The potential shortfall is tied to the pace of the energy transition, in which fossil fuel generators, and coal plants in particular, are retiring faster than they can be replaced by new clean and renewable generation. The report has led to a flurry of activity in PJM as its members rush headlong into a process to reform the way the market manages and values the reliability that generators bring to the electricity system. The hope is that PJM can revise its market rules to ensure that supply meets demand at all times, including during extreme weather events that have recently threatened the reliability of the grid. The problems to be addressed are profoundly complex and extend beyond the fundamentals of energy technology to encompass the diverse economic and environmental priorities at play in the market and, more broadly, across the nation. Here to discuss the challenges facing PJM and the solutions that may lie ahead is today's guest, Abe Silverman. Abe is director of the Non-Technical Barriers to the Clean Energy Transition Research and Policy Program at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Until recently, Abe was general counsel for the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities, the state's electricity regulator, and a stakeholder in the PJM market. Abe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. It's great to be here. So you're fresh out of the New Jersey BPU, and New Jersey is a progressive, clean energy-focused state that also happens to be one of the 13 states that is within the PJM market. I wonder if to start our conversation and to lay the groundwork for our discussion of the resource adequacy challenges that PJM is facing, you could begin by describing the clean energy policies that states like New Jersey are pushing and what they are not willing to compromise on in terms of clean energy adoption. So states like New Jersey have these incredibly robust clean energy targets, and they're being joined by a lot of other states throughout the PJM region, but also customers, large corporates and other cities and municipalities all looking to supply an increasing amount of their energy from uh, carbon-free resources. So there's been this real push and pull at PJM between states and consumers who are demanding uh, additional clean energy options and things like the, the, the future reliability of the grid as we get to a, a more and more decarbonized grid. So a lot of our time spent in New Jersey was actually thinking about how do we meet the state clean energy goals of New Jersey? Uh, how do we meet the state clean energy goals of you know, Illinois and other states like Maryland, who also have, or Washington, D.C., who all have very aggressive targets, and do it in a framework that keeps the lights on throughout the PJM region. So how are the states in the market, in the PJM market, working to address this at this point? There are really three different things going on with the state policies that we're working to integrate into the PJM market. You know, we really see this trend where states are favoring clean sources of electricity. For example, you know, New Jersey has its uh, 100% clean energy by 2035 program or its offshore wind program uh, or its solar program, which is trying to bring 750 megawatts a year onto the market. Those are all examples of favoring clean energy sources. And those are largely being driven by state policies, you know, in the absence of a larger federal cohesive policy. So we have the favoring of resources. And then we also have a bunch of state and federal policies that are disfavoring uh, generation that has emissions, traditionally fossil fuel resources. And so we have a number of programs that are looking at the total carbon emissions from the fossil fleet in various states. Illinois' CJA program, Clean Equity Jobs Act uh, in, from out of Illinois, has been a, a, really, a really groundbreaking piece of legislation in Illinois because it effectively says they have to move away from fossil resources by 2030 and really backstop a lot of that stuff with clean. Uh, New Jersey has very comparable, though somewhat less aggressive policies, uh, like its Global Warming Response Act, that put in emission standards on existing fossil resources. So we have that sort of second group of, of state policies that are 
leading to the shutdown, retirement, for policy reasons, of existing fossil resources. And then we have the sort of third X factor in all of this, which is what is the load growth that we're going to see across the PJM region? You know, utilities across this country have not had sustained load growth since the early 2000s. Uh, For the most part, load has been relatively steady. Certainly, there are pockets where it grows. But now we have a lot of state uh, policies that are meeting their carbon targets through a mix of clean energy requirements, but also electrification of building and transportation sector. And as we start looking at the load growth, um, we start to see, and I think this is going to show some of the cracks in the existing PJM system. So we have lots more clean, some less fossil, and a lot more demand. And that's where the states are are leading, um, are sort of leading the PJM market. And, you know, I think we're basically seeing a catch up where PJM is now looking to, uh, you know, talk about and think about um, how these various policies are really uh, are, 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 are really affecting the long term reliability of the PJM market. That load growth issue is, is, is very interesting, right? Because as you said, load growth has been pretty much flat, meaning load has not grown. <laughs> There's no load growth, right? But, you know, you, you've got the issue of the EVs coming on. We've got Electrify Everything, including home heating, which is, you know, becoming more of a thing. And and also these data centers, right? And there are certain pockets in PJM where a lot of new data centers are coming in and the load growth in those areas looks pretty darn dramatic. So so again, all these pressures are coming at a time when load growth is starting to pick up again. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And and the really interesting thing about load growth is PJM has identified data centers as, as a really large factor. And, and I think that is probably true. But the other pieces I think could be even more profound. If we, you know, and I just I just look at what President Biden just did, what the EPA just did with their EV policies um, and the new CAFE standards. And there they're looking at 60% of all new vehicles sold in America by 2032 are going to be electric. That is a profound shift in the load patterns uh, and the amount of consumption that we're going to have in, in this country if it actually succeeds. So New Jersey actually looked at this in its energy master plan of 2020 and effectively showed that we, by 2050, so this is a long-term projection, but effectively showed that we were going to need three times as much generating capacity to meet Two, two times uh, the amount of load in New Jersey alone. So there is like this huge, profound, titanic shift in the way we heat our houses, the way we drive our, our cars uh, and vehicles, um, as well as manage our data. And so as we see these various programs start to kick in, it is really important to look at both, you know, to do a variety of scenario plans where you look at high electrification cases, high tr- electrification of transportation cases, um, you know, and 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 so on down the list, and of course, counteracted against those load growing growing policies are also load shrinking policies. Um, like you know, in New Jersey and other states, we have very aggressive energy efficiency targets, and that's going to put some downward pressure on that load growth. But at the end of the day, if you think about it, we're effectively replacing every gas station in America with you know electricity. Uh, and we're going to need the infrastructure to do that. And so if you start thinking about all that energy that's currently delivered through pipes and wires and by truck, uh, we're really talking about moving a good portion of that energy demand onto the electric grid instead. And that that load growth piece is really fundamental in how we think about planning for a future and planning for the reliability of the grid, particularly as we move more and more critical services onto the electric grid. Okay, so the impact of these policies at the state level, federal level, and low growth really have caught the attention of PJM. It's very much aware of what's going on. And on February 24th, the market released a white paper. The title of that white paper was Energy Transition in PJM, Resource Retirements, Replacements, and Risks. And it's actually the third report in the series on the energy transition, but this is the one we're talking about today. The report warns of a potential shortage of generating capacity or in in, in lingo of the industry, uh, uh, resource inadequacy later this decade. Could you introduce the major findings of the report and the gravity of the situation in PJM? 
Yeah, and, and, and let me even step back and talk about what is resource adequacy, because <laughs> you know when when I'm when I'm explaining what I do to uh, to people at uh, you know uh, uh, cocktail parties and such, and their eyes start glazing over. Usually, it's they really start glazing when I get to resource adequacy. I can imagine they get really excited about this stuff. Sure. Oh, oh, totally. <laughs> and, you know, some of the cocktail parties I go to, yes. But so so let's talk about like what is resource adequacy. And at its heart, it's very simple. It's making sure that you have enough generation in the places you need it to meet customer demand for electricity. And, you know, when you sort of step back and think about the miracle of the electric grid, because it is, you know, I've heard people call it the, the, the world's largest machine. It is kind of amazing because other than a little bit of battery storage and pumped hydro storage, all the electricity we use is being generated instantaneously. And it all needs to stay in balance. And so resource adequacy is just this very complicated process of looking forward, say, okay, in three years, what do we think electricity is going to look like? How much generation do we need to have? What do we think the consumer demand is going to be? Uh, And then we also have to make sure that we have a reserve margin because this stuff is too important. You don't want, you know, if something on the system breaks, if the weather is a lot colder than we expect or a lot hotter than we expect and electricity uh, use skyrockets, how do we actually make sure that the system is resilient, that we have redundancy in the system? And we often refer to that as the reserve margin. And that kicks in, you know, when things things break. Uh, And in fact, we don't just look when system planners plan out the grid and look at the resource adequacy. They don't just look at one thing breaking. They look at two things breaking. So you basically, in an N minus one contingency, sorry for the jargon, but this is how we talk. Uh, In an N minus one contingency, you take out one element on the grid. That could be a transmission line. uh, It could be a a power plant. uh, could be a large load. And you expect the grid to seamlessly keep working. And then you go ahead and you say, okay, let's do another Let's take out in the next the next most severe consequence, the next biggest thing to break. And you take that thing out, and the grid hopefully will stop will keep working then too. So that's what really what we're thinking about with resource adequacy. And traditionally, when we plan for resource adequacy, we ask the market to identify the least cost suite of generation resources that meets our reliability needs, including these reserve margins in case something goes wrong. I think we actually, you know, as the state, as state clean energy policies become a bigger driver of investment in the electric grid, we actually need to start changing that question. So not just look at what the lowest cost suite of resources is that meets reliability, but it's got to be the lowest cost suite of resources that meet reliability because those things are, are uh, you know, are, are must-haves but that also meet state clean energy targets. And the answer is going to be different if you try to do those two analyses. And so a lot of, a lot of where you know, my critique of PJM comes in uh, is that they need to actually start explicitly accounting for consumer demand for clean energy and for state laws that mandate certain amounts of clean energy. Abe, it's really interesting what you just said. You know, reliability really has always been so much of what PJM and all the electricity markets have always been about, reliability first. Obviously, economics are important as well, but we're talking here about a, a, a you know, kind of a, a new consideration, which is that this electricity be, be clean. Yeah, Andy, you know, I would, I would even push back slightly, maybe offer a friendly amendment to what you just said. Because it, the ISOs have always said reliability is job one, and, and and you know I think that's certainly true of federal and state policymakers as well. But there's also the the idea of cost is deeply embedded in reliability. Um, so when we talk about reliability, we don't say reliability at any cost. I mean, we could gold plate the system, uh, we could bury lines to your house, we could do all sorts of things if cost wasn't issue that we don't do. So we say, what is the lowest cost system that we can get that meets certain predefined reliability metrics? And so for the bulk power system, we've always sort of had this almost mythical one year in 10 standard, which is we would expect to have enough generation on the grid to meet customer demand, uh, you know, every time in 10 years, except for once. And that's the standard we plan to. And it actually drives a huge amount of the economics of the grid. Um, because you know we 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 do have this this target uh, reliability metric, and you know, and I think one of the things that we're going to see over the next couple of years from PJM is really fundamentally rethinking what that metric looks like. 
But I think the other piece of it, you know, sort of beyond just the scenario planning and the, the loss of load expectation kind of, you know, risk calculation that, that, uh, that people in my world do all the time and argue about all the time, um, I think the question is shifting. And, and this is the piece that I think is, is, is absolutely critical as we move forward with, with, the, with the energy transition, is we need to talk about not just what is the loss of load expectation from the traditional grid, um, but what does it look like in, in this new world we're creating where there are more variable resources, where climate change, uh, climate change driven severe weather, weather patterns are, are more pronounced? Um, you know, because I think if we've learned anything from the reliability crises over the last couple of years, uh, it's that when Mother Nature fights the grid, Mother Nature is going to win. Uh, and we can, we, can, we can do what we can to keep the lights on. Uh, but at some level, when we see ever-increasing hot weather, um, ever-increasing cold weather and more severe cold weather, as well as increased storms, that's all going to drive the future reliability planning that we do. Uh, but so anyway, just coming back to the point, I do think that that is always, resource adequacy has always been about setting the standard and then finding, and then the markets find the least cost means of meeting that standard. And so that's kind of how the two really do work in parallel. So let's go back to this issue of of February 24th report, uh, because simultaneous to the release of that report on the same day, the PJM board of directors, uh, alarmed, I think, somewhat by what that report came up with, uh, issued a letter to PJM stakeholders that initiated a process to address the resource adequacy concerns, again, that were identified in that report. Could you tell us about this process and its goals. So there was this there was this fascinating report coming out of PJM where they they looked at the future 2030 grid and kind of had an oh shoot moment. That that may not be the word they used, but that's that's the word I'll use. Um, and, and so in this report they 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 lay out really four fundamental things that have them concerned. Um, one is that they are seeing decreasing reserve margins for the first time in PJM's history. Uh, you know, PJM has always been blessed with a, with a very large, healthy reserve margin. Uh, in fact, for the last several years, a lot of the, the sort of zeitgeist has been around the fact that PJM has too high a reserve margin. Uh, and now to have PJM coming in and saying, actually, we're not sure we have enough generation resources in 2030 uh, was was uh, you know a, a sea change in, in sort of the way PJM has been talking about these things. So there's this declining reserve margin for the first time. What's driving that? It really is a combination of two factors, both having to do with existing fossil resources and whether they remain in the market. First, the PJM study noted that there have there is about 20 gigawatts, so that's 20,000 megawatts. Think of that as 20 large coal facilities, 20 gigawatts of, of generation that was going to be required to retire for state and federal environmental permitting reasons. On top of that, they were also looking at approximately another 20 gigawatts of, of fossil, dispatchable fossil resources that were retiring for economics in that 2020 to 2035 timeframe. Really, for the second time in its history, PJM was seeing a large number of resources retiring, the first being associated with coal retirements at the mid-2010s associated with the mercury air toxics rules out of of the Environmental Protection Agency. So for the second time, PJM is looking at the retirement of up to 40,000 megawatts, 40 gigawatts of generation, over the next decade. Uh, And so that had them very concerned. And just to give you a bit of context, the entire PJM system, including reserve margin, is just under 200 gigawatt. So we're talking 20% of the market, right? We're talking 20% of the market, right? And that is, you know, for anybody who works in the clean energy transition, they probably hear that number and they say, well, that's not fast enough. Um, But to utility planners, they think, oh my God, what are we going to do? How are we going to replace that that 20 gigawatts? So, okay, so that was problem number one that PJM identified in this report. The second is the load growth. And we sort of already talked about that, but they in particular uh, cite this concern over new data centers, largely in the, in the, in the Washington, D.C. suburbs on the Virginia side, where they have identified 
a large amount, you know, in the in the 10 gigawatt range of of new load coming on. And, you know, I I I think the data centers are obviously a big issue. I actually think electrification of medium and heavy duty vehicles may be at least as significant as well as, of course, all the electrification of the light duty vehicles and, and housing stock uh, as we as we move more towards heat pumps and away from gas furnaces. Like all of those load growth issues are really critical and can drive a huge swing in, um, in what the future needs of the grid are. So then we get into, you know, those are kind of the macro pieces. And then PJM sort of highlights two additional problems. And these get a little bit wonky, but they're absolutely critical. One is that PJM spends a lot of time talking about the rate at which new generation resources are, re- are coming into service. And this is often you know, uh, lumped together called the interconnection process, which is really the process of plugging in a new generator into the grid. Um, fossil resources go through the interconnection process. Renewable resources go through the interconnection process. And it is the key gating item uh, to bringing a new resource onto the grid. So PJM currently has over 200 gigawatts, 200,000 megawatts of generation in their interconnection queue. Almost all of it is renewable clean resources. Wind, solar, about 30% is batteries. Um, All of these things are sort of coming in, fighting to take market share from the existing incumbent resources. Now, that sounds great. And if all of those resources, if that 200 gigawatts of generation was coming through the interconnection queue, actually hooking up to the grid, I don't think that we would be having this conversation right now. But what PJM identified is that something less than 20% of the resources currently in the queue are actually reaching commercial operation. Uh, And in fact, the story is even more grim in the last couple of years where there's even fewer resources coming on and actually interconnecting. So I think PJM, you know, I'm sort of giving this in in the light most favorable to them. They were very concerned when they're sort of looking at this inflow outflow analysis and saying that the outflows seem pretty certain uh, because they are being driven by state laws. Meaning the coal retirements the coal retirements, and some gas. We can't just talk about coal. Um, there, are, there are gas standards as well that are coming. Um, and so you have all those, all those exiting resources that are there. And yet the flow, the, the, the flow of new resources to, to replace them is coming in in a trickle. And this is you know, a, a result of a complicated set of policies. But effectively, the PJM interconnection process has ground to a halt in the last couple of years. PJM used to process a couple hundred interconnection requests a year. You know, large central station generators would come in. They would go through a fairly orderly two to three year study process. Then they would connect. These days, PJM is just being bombarded on all sides by new resources coming into the queue. And as a result, the process has slowed down dramatically. In fact, PJM is is sort of you know uh, just has has is partway through its new process, trying to 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 to, st- to streamline uh, the interconnection rules and improve them. But even under the new improved rules, we're still not seeing the number of resources come onto the grid that we need to effectively backstop the departure of the fossil. Now, this is a really critical point because PJM itself says that under a high new entry scenario, so where the interconnection issues are resolved or ameliorated, there's actually sufficient generation coming onto the grid to replace the departing resources. And so in a lot of ways, you know, this 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 report that PJM put out kind of has two, you know, if I were if I were if I were in journalism and I was writing a headline for, you know, this report, which I know would be read by exactly three people. Um, but it would say, you know, alternatively, PJM predicts resource adequacy shortfalls in 2030. Like that is one framing. The other framing, the one that I actually happen to subscribe to, is that 
PJM identifies need to improve interconnection process to avoid future reliability issues. Two totally different framings of exactly the same report. And then I'll even I'll even go like, you know, one cut down. This is where we're getting really into the deep cuts here. We're, we're maybe not even on the B side anymore, we're on the C side. But there is this issue that all the uh, system operators across the country are dealing with, which is how do you accredit resources for capacity purposes? And, and the science tells us and a lot of engineering tells us that as you get more and more solar or wind resources coming onto the grid, their effective load carrying capability goes down. And, and what does that actually mean? It just means that if the sun isn't shining over, you know, over New Jersey on a particular day, all the solar resources in New Jersey are going to have a subpar day. Um, the same thing for offshore wind. You know, if the wind isn't blowing on any particular day, uh, you're going to have uh, less wind on that day. I mean, this is not this is not rocket science, but it's very clear. But what we found, uh, and we see this, has become a very important issue in places like California that have much higher renewable penetrations than we do in, in the PJM region, uh, is that the the production of variable resources is codependent across a large geographic area. And so to account for that, PJM is looking at adjusting the capacity accreditation. So think of it another way. A, a megawatt of solar coming onto the grid does not have the same dispatchable characteristics as a megawatt of coal leaving the grid or a megawatt of natural gas leaving the grid. Now, footnote, we also see a lot of those same interdependencies on the, on the gas system and the coal system as well. Failures of the natural gas fleet are also very correlated across particular kinds of weather patterns. Um, and so we see a lot of these resources actually showing up, you know, when you, when you sort of step back and think about it in the modern grid, they have a lower capacity factor uh, or a lower capacity value than we may have been ascribing them for the last couple of years. So when you combine these four factors, you know, decreasing amounts of fossil generation, the discount that's being applied to new clean energy resources through the ELCC methodology, the problem with the interconnection queue choking off new entry, and you add in load growth, and I think that's where all of a sudden PJM uh, and, and the board came out with the study and said, okay, we need, a fun we need to fundamentally step back. Uh, and think about what we're doing here. So just to kind of reiterate what you've been saying, one of the points here is that w one of the challenges we're seeing is that it's going to take a lot more renewable energy, wind and solar, to replace the, say, the coal and to some extent the natural gas generation that's retiring. And that's based on this concept or due to this concept known as capacity values, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you think about running the grid, it's much easier to run the grid when you have a whole bunch of fossil resources that basically turn on and off. Uh, and then when you start injecting large amounts of clean energy resources, you know, you, you basically have a probabilistic weighted average of the amount of energy that they can produce. And so you effectively, you know, say, all right, solar is on about a third of the time. So we're going to give it a, you know, a, a roughly one third value. So if you are taking a whole bunch of fossil off the grid, and replacing it with clean, you actually need on a nameplate capacity to have a lot more clean resources coming in. And so one of the points that the PJM report made and that the board of, uh, board of Directors letter said is they noted that, okay, we have 200 gigawatts of generation in the PJM queue, but once we start discounting that and looking at the implied actual capacity value, uh, you know, that's, that may not even be enough. And that particularly when you start looking at the problem with getting those resources through to the grid because of the interconnection queue uh, and the lack of transmission planning, that we actually are not seeing enough generation coming online to replace the, leave, the stuff that's leaving. Uh, and so particularly when you, you sort of think about you know, 200 gigawatts of generation in the queue, you discount that to maybe 30%, that's uh, 90 gigawatts. Uh, and then you discount that again by the sort of 5 to 10% of projects that are actually making it through the queue. And then you start having a real potential mismatch between the flow of resources coming into the grid and the ones leaving the grid. And that's really where the PJM board sort of uh, pulled, the, uh, 
pulled the fire alarm. Okay, so the future in PJM looks very uncertain, potentially scary. Summing up, more generation is leaving than is quickly replacing that that generation that's being lost. Now, the future, again, looks uncertain, but one of the additional plot twists here, we'll call it, is that there are already reliability and resource adequacy concerns that exist right now, day one, the day that we're having this conversation in PJM market. And PJM just in December narrowly averted a crisis during winter storm Elliott. That was the cold snap around Christmas when a whole lot of generators in the market failed to perform. What happened then and what does that mean about the base point of reliability we're working from going forward? Oh, that's such a great question, Andy, because the first thing I want to I want to note is the PJM analysis suggested that we have this problem in 2030. I think a lot of us who actually step back and look at the data have raised some pretty serious concerns with whether the, the sort of very grim case that PJM is presenting is actually accurate. Um, you know, a number of parties filed letters actually with the PJM board critiquing the PJM analysis, noting that some of the retirement predictions as a result of state public policies may be overstated. Uh, they didn't necessarily account for reliability uh, safety valves that were incorporated into some of those state policies, including ones in New Jersey. So there was a real sense that perhaps the situation wasn't quite as grim as PJM uh, was portraying it. The second critique we really saw coming out of uh, particularly the clean energy advocacy folks was that PJM is assuming not only that 25 gigawatts of generation retires for state public policy reasons, um, but that another 15 gigawatts is retiring due to economics and is expected to leave the grid. And and one of the things that, that this community pointed out, and I have to say I have some sympathy with this argument, was that PJM is ignoring the fact that the fact that its markets will show higher prices in the future if we start getting into these scarcity conditions, uh, and that that will affect the the willingness of generators to stay in the market. And so, when you sort of ignore that impact on bid, on generator bidding behavior and retirement plans, uh, you know, you sort of you sort of are painting a very grim picture that maybe things aren't as bad as they are. The last piece of it is. You know, I think a lot of us, particularly who have been on the on the sort of ground trying to get clean energy built in New Jersey, uh, sorry, built in PJM, have really seen the impact of the supply chain, uh, the pandemic associated supply chain barriers. Um, and so what PJM is really extrapolating from in terms of how many projects are going to make it to commercial operation was really affected um, negatively by the pandemic and by the supply chain. So if you're sort of trying to draw, you know, uh, like at the beginning of all those investment uh, podcasts I listened to, uh, you know, past performance is not indicative of future performance. And so you were a little bit concerned that PJM is is taking a, a, a worst case scenario by looking at the completion rates over the last couple of years, um, even though those have been pretty dramatically affected by both the interconnection delays at PJM, but then also compounded um, by these supply chain issues. And so, so when you sort of take a step back, I think there's significant question as to whether the reliability issues that PJM identified in its paper um, really warrant the kind of response that the road they're going down. Except then, of course, I have to step back and, as a, you know, say, as somebody you know who's worked in state government and also, uh, frankly, at FERC um, and in the private sector. You know, you have to you have to plan for a worst case scenario. And so, you know, I think we all fully support what PJM is doing here. We're just not I think a lot of us are not quite as convinced that the situation is as dire as PJM says it is. Uh, But all that said, absolutely support looking into it and, and giving it some serious thought. So now let me turn to the really what your question was about uh, about the Storm Elliott in December. And I have to tell you, you know, this was, I was in New Jersey government at the time, and we started getting phone calls and emails and texts from, you know, really across uh, across PJM and across, you know, our regulated utilities, um, all suggesting that there was, you know, a very serious reliability event. Uh, I will never forget, you know, Christmas, uh, Christmas morning of Christmas Eve, we were up in, uh, uh, you know, visiting family up in, up in Brooklyn. 
uh, and I had to step out. <laughs> I went to our local coffee shop and was taking phone calls, uh, you know, increasingly frantic about, is the system going to survive? Uh, and, you know, so what actually happened? Well, the weather was the key driver. And it wasn't the coldest day we've ever seen, but it was a day where the temperature dropped super rapidly. And so you had this evolving condition on the grid where PJM's load forecast, you know, their prediction of how much electricity was going to be needed the next day was too low. Uh, you had these rapid drops in temperature. You had a couple of nuclear units that came offline. Uh, so, you know, as you sort of think about what do we design our grid to, right? It's an N minus one or N minus two contingency. Well, here we had, I don't know, N minus three. <laughs> um, and then on top of that, we started seeing really an unprecedented level of failure on the natural gas system. Books will be written, at least by, by the North American Electric Reliability Council and people who read that kind of material, on exactly what happened. But here's what we know. There were certain natural gas facilities. So you, you, you had this sort of unprecedented number of things that happened that day. First, like I said, load was higher than expected. Uh, and then you had a couple of nuclear units drop. And then you had failures of natural gas-fired generation resources. And this is where you get really complicated into the root cause analysis. And, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not necessarily the expert on that, or am I going to opine on that? But what we effectively saw was a combination of natural gas supply dropping, including things from the Marcellus uh, wells that were shut in or otherwise unavailable. So you had less. All due to the severe weather, right? All due to the severe weather. You had less supply coming onto the pipeline system. And then you had a number of generation resources, uh, particularly gas resources, failing. And there was something at its, at its peak, like 40 gigawatts of gas that did not show up when dispatched. So that's a, you know, that's a huge portion of the PJM system. Think, you know, 200 gigawatts total on any given day. You usually have 140, 150, 160,000 megawatts showing up. Uh, and here we had 40 gigawatts of gas uh, failing for various reasons. And there is ongoing litigation right now as we speak at FERC um, about whether, you know, it's a lot of finger pointing. The gas fire generators say, well, we couldn't get the gas because of inflexibility on the natural gas pipeline system. They're saying, hey, PJM didn't tell us to turn on in time. Um, you know, there's uh, this, there's 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 about two billion dollars in penalties hinging on exactly what happened uh, and who's to blame. And you know, there's a you can you can have a whole series of podcasts on that, which is a ridiculously high sum. Two billion dollars in penalties is it, it completely unprecedented. It is high. I mean, it, it it's we 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 have to think about context. Remember, because when ERCOT. Um, finished up with Storm Uri, they had in the tens of billions. Mm, okay, so PJM, yes, but ERCOT, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. You know, so I mean, yes, $2 billion is a lot of money. Um, I think it represents about one year of capacity revenues. Uh, you know, it's a significant amount. Uh, and, and I think there will be a lot of question as to whether it was the right amount and whether there should be a rejiggering of the, um, of the incentives and the penalty structure. But, you know, suffice it to say that when these resources were needed, they did not show up. Uh, and so this is really, I think, added to the sense of unease uh, as we sort of look to this clean energy future where we have more intermittent resources. We're losing some of these fossil and gas resources and the fossil and gas resources just aren't as reliable as everyone has always thought they were. So when you add those things together, particularly with the specter of climate change and weather that's getting worse you know, over time, we have to step back and say, okay, is, are our markets actually giving us a suite of resources that's reliable? Now, the amazing thing is actually not that we were close to failure, but that the PJM system survived. Because it, it is, you know, a, I think a real testament to the incredible hard work uh, that all the grid operators at PJM did. It's a testament to uh, demand response and state policies that were driving conservation. Um, and it's partially due to luck, frankly. And you saw that down in, you know, the Duke service territory and other parts of the country, they were actually having a lost load. And so as we think about the, 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 the Elliott storm, 
um, you know, and, and then the Uri storm in Texas and the polar vortex back in 2014, these were all examples that when the weather gets super cold, you know, problems just start materializing. And each time we go through one of these extreme weather events and we do our root cause analysis, we come out with a series of recommendations. You know, we, we the royal we here, uh, FERC, NERC, and other entities all sort of go through and say, okay, here are the 10 things we need to do to, to stop this from happening again. Well, well I think it's interesting in, in PJM, this was supposed to be solved, right? So in 2014, there was the winter polar vortex, a similar situation of extreme cold impacting the system. You had generation outages. And in response to that, PJM responded with something it calls capacity performance, which is a system of requirements and of essentially carrots and sticks to ensure that generators are going to be available to operate even under extreme conditions. Those reforms based upon the results that we saw, what happened during Winter Storm Elliott, those reforms were essentially, it looks like, a failure. Is, is that too strong a language to use? I think you need to step back and, and, and ask the question, what would it have been if we hadn't had those reforms? Because mm -hmm. at some level, the system did hold up. But a lot of generation that was supposed to be reliable did not show up, right? So what capacity performance does is it provides a financial incentive for generators to make investments. You know, none of these generation resources will ever be 100% reliable. Um, it's just the world we live in. And so when you sort of look at the at, at what, what, what do generators do in response to sort of, you know, a threat of penalties, they actually do make investments in things like weatherization and identifying where where the problems are in their own systems. Um, you know, and that could be fuel procurement, that could be switching to backup fuel. Um, I know my my former company, NRG Energy, went through a very traumatic event in, in, in ERCOT in 2011, where a number of our resources, their generating resources, failed due to cold weather. That The company made significant investments and modernized its operating procedures to try to avoid having those problems again, occur again. Um, and, you know, so I think you do need to ask the question, did generators respond to the CP market mechanism in a way that made it better than it otherwise would have been? And I, you know, and I, I think I think you have to look at this and you want to say, you want to really step back and say, um, do that type of analysis and what, how, how were generators responding to those price signals? Now, that said, I think we all recognize that having 40% of your generation fleet uh, on a cold day fail is simply not acceptable. And, you know, and then you sort of get into um, what happened between sort of 2014, when, as you say, capacity performance was, came in heralded by many stakeholders uh, as a real you know, evolution in, in, in the capacity market, um, market design. Uh, and so what happened between then when generators were making investments in reliability, were buying additional, you know, uh, uh, pipeline capacity on the grid, were really taking uh, efforts to weatherize their coal plants and gas plants. And sort of what happened between that 2014 period and 2022. And I think part of it was there were no capacity performance assessment hours for almost a decade. And so I think it's fair to ask the question, did some of the generators get complacent because they had not seen the carrots and sticks kick in for so long? Um, you know, did that, did that make them more comfortable? Were there things that they sort of stopped doing in terms of, you know, having extra shifts or doing extra preventative maintenance before a cold snap? Um, you know, and, and so here we have a very, you know, large amount of penalties that kick in. And if it's really only going to be once every 10 years, then I think it's almost human nature that we forget the lessons of 10 years ago. And, you know, we're more focused on the economics of today and yesterday. Uh, and so I think there will be a movement to reform the capacity performance mechanism to have it be a little bit more spread out 
maybe trigger more often so that you have these incentives and you get to see how your generation fleet is performing um, without making it quite such a, such a draconian penalty on days when you don't perform. Let's jump up to the present day from 2014 to April of 2023. And the process that PJM has initiated and is underway right now to address some of the resource adequacy concerns that the February 24th white paper identified for later this decade. And the process that is undergoing right now is called the Critical Issue Fast Path. And the goal is to come up with some solutions and submit those solutions in a plan to the FERC by October 1st of this year. And as I understand it, this has to be done quickly because Things move slowly in the electricity market, as we've already talked about. It takes time to plan and build new generation, to interconnect generation, et cetera. So we need a head start, okay? So there was a meeting yesterday that you attended where the stakeholders in PJM started to talk about what reforms need to be made. And those comments that happened yesterday were based upon some initial proposals that came from PJM itself several weeks ago. Tell us, what are some of the initial solutions that are being discussed? What did you see and hear in yesterday's meeting? Yeah, it was really interesting because I think we're seeing this desire to move away from the one in 10-year reliability standard and more to talk about expected value of unserved energy. So like, what's the difference there? You know, unserved energy is supposed to put sort of a magnitude calculation into our future reliability planning. Because a one in 10 year standard mostly talks about how often is an event gonna happen, but then doesn't really talk to us about, doesn't really inform how severe that event is. Um, So I think there's a real trend and interest in moving to an expected unserved energy calculation, um, which looks at the magnitude, how severe is the event, how many customers were actually affected if we do lose the system due to a reliability event. You know, there's a lot of different proposals and they get super wonky. But one of the one of the really interesting ideas is this focus on winter reliability, because I think we've all seen, whether it be the Storm Uri in Texas or Elliott or the polar vortex, the grid is increasingly getting stressed during the winter. I mean, you know, when I was first in this industry, the focus was really on those hot summer days when everybody's got ACs running, right? Well, everybody's got their AC running. It's cranked up. Uh, you've got huge load on the system. You know, and I think what we've actually seen is that most of the vulnerabilities on the grid tend to happen during the winter um, because of the freezing of equipment and the kind of unexpected impacts of cold weather on coal piles and natural gas distribution facilities, pipelines. Uh, and so, you know, there's been this, this really switch from focusing on the summer to focusing on the winter and recognizing that our existing system overvalues summer compliance with with reliability metrics and undervalues winter. And the clean energy transition is only going to exacerbate that concern because traditional, you know, things like solar, hey, they're great on that hot peak summer day. Um, You know, distributed solar takes thousands of megawatts off the, uh, off, uh, uh, you know, basically it's negative load from PJM's point of view. uh, And it really helps the system a lot. In the winter, there's there's less solar that will be somewhat offset as we bring in increasing amounts of offshore wind and other things. But particularly that load growth, you know, as we electrify our heating, uh, building heating in particular, you're going to start seeing more winter load. And so, a lot of us in the industry, when we sort of look into the future, we see this flipping of you know, winter is now going to become the peak load period and certainly the biggest challenge for reliability. And so a lot of the options that PJM was looking at um, all center around how do we get more of the price signal for being reliable into that winter period? So the carrots and the sticks, or maybe the carrots in this case, for reliability become even juicier, right? To incentivize the generators to really be available. 
I think it was interesting. Uh, I listened a little bit to the to the to, to the meeting, and the uh, market monitor, which is the organization, the body that actually monitors the PJM market to make sure it's run efficiently, etc., also uh, brought up this idea that that fuel supply should be firm for all resources, meaning guaranteed delivery of fuel. For example, gas plants. Is that something else that would be part of the solution? This is one place where I, I think I have to respectfully disagree with uh, with Dr. Bowering. He's the he's the market monitor. He is the market monitor. Uh, he, Joe, every, every, everybody in the PGM stakeholder community calls him Joe. I mean, he is an institution, absolutely brilliant economist, and has been a uh, you know very effective market monitor for PGM now for a number of years. On on, on this issue and several others, I, I respectfully disagree. Uh, it is very difficult to say that you want firm fuel supplies without taking into account the financial impact of that requirement. So what happens when you start getting, when you start putting firm fuel requirements on? One, you're simply increasing your reliance on the natural gas system. And and as we saw during Elliott uh, and a number of other events, there are failures of the natural gas system that occur during cold weather, just like there are for other technologies. And so even if you have firm transportation on an interstate pipeline, um, that is still no guarantee that it's going to get to you. In particular, and I I won't go into the the crazy wonkiness of this, but even if you have firm transportation, gas service, and even if the gas is available, you still have to tell the pipeline that you want that gas generally 24 to 48 hours in advance of your needing it. So that's wonderful if you sort of anticipate a heat wave coming through uh, you know, during the summer, but it's it's much less effective um, during the winter if temperatures start dropping. So I think the 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 firm fuel requirement is maybe seductive in the sense that oh, if if everybody had the right contractual relationships with their fuel supplier, we wouldn't have these problems. Um, but I think the cost implications of doing that are going to make it completely infeasible. Uh, and I, I actually don't think it would get you all that much. Uh, because we still have these other factors um, out there that are really compounding the problem. I, I will say, and I think I think one theme you heard throughout yesterday's meeting was the need to move from sort of annual metrics to some sort of hourly capacity value, um, such that you know you're not just looking at uncorrelated outages across the entire year when you do your capacity uh, per, uh, capacity purchases but that you're actually focusing and looking at, okay, what's available on, you know, a cold winter's day, um, you know, between the hours of, say, 6 and 9 a.m., you know, that may be, that may require a a, a different shaped capacity product in order to ensure reliability um, than we traditionally plan for. And I think that's a really interesting theme that we're going to see coming out of, uh, out of the PJM process. You know, at the risk of taking this this conversation even wonkier than it already is, you know, one of the interesting <laughs> things also is the capacity market. The auctions for capacity are three years ahead of when that capacity is going to be needed. So, I mean, there's some, some reasons that's not exactly the case right now, but the market will work that out. Uh, but actually, I, I did also hear some some proposals that the three year ahead capacity auction be moved much closer to the date when that capacity will be needed, like a year or 18 months out. Can you talk about what that might, you know, offer in terms of reliability if, if that's a, a solution that might come through? This is an ongoing national debate. And different parts of the country have different capacity market structures. PJM in New England, they do it the same way, has this effectively three-year forward market. And, and you know, it, it, it basically says, all right, generators, you tell us who's, who's raising their hand to say that they will be here in three years. And if not enough people raise their hand, then you go in and, and you know, contract with new resources to come on and, and meet that, that requirement in three years. Uh, I, th- I happen to think that that is an effective system. Uh, or at least that it can be, and particularly as we start focusing on the clean energy transition, states uh, and other buyers who are really prioritizing clean energy need to be able to know that the clean energy and the resources needed to back up that clean energy are available three years in the future. 
So I actually think there's a lot of merit to the three-year forward market. That said, you know, New York has a month-ahead market um, that sort of is a year-ahead market in, in varying ways, and that the, the complexities are, are, are really intense, so I won't sort of get into them. Um, and you can make that work, too, because you're sending a very clear price signal that drives forward investment. Uh, California, they use a combination, a laddered procurement mechanism where they have one-year um, procurement, and then they have showings in two and three years. Um, ERCOT, they have no capacity market. All the all the the money is 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 put into this you know energy market shortage price signal. At the end of the day, if you create a structure where generators see that their total revenue from the energy market plus the capacity market plus any ancillary services or renewable energy credit value. Um, exceeds their cost of bringing a new resource into the market, they will do so, right? Plus their plus their profit and, and risk premium. And so I, I think any one of these various structures can work, but they have to be very carefully calibrated to make sure that consumers are getting the best possible deal for their money, while also sending the very clear price signal to generators who want to make an investment. I tend to think that that three-year forward is about right. And that as you, one of my major concerns actually with the interconnection debacle, and I will use that term, uh, at PJM, is that even if prices start creeping up in the PJM capacity market for three years forward, you can't get a new project through the interconnection process in time to have it actually show up and meet that need. And that's a real problem because we have this, all of our reliability metrics are premised around this idea that new entry can come in and satisfy the reliability need and help discipline pricing behavior uh, and discipline exercise of market power because, you know, hey, if I'm a generator, if I'm an incumbent generator and I put my price up too high, somebody else has three years to come in and undercut me. And that's a really important facet of the PJM market. So I'm not... I'm not saying that one of these proposals to shorten that period couldn't work. I absolutely think they, they could, uh, but it would be a really fundamental rethink of how the PJM market works. It would be would, would, would come with a host of sort of market power and design implementation details uh, that, that I think are even actually beyond the scope of, of this current PJM process. You know, it's interesting. You just mentioned this interconnection process and 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 what a, a problem it has been in the PJM market. And I, I just have to note, it's conspicuously absent, this interconnection issue from all the discussions that are going on in this fast track process right now. So you can shore up the reliability of existing resources. But again, if we have so much coal retiring and we need to replace it with new, optimally clean resources, one of the core problems here is how do we get those resources into the market on time quickly? And this process really isn't looking at that. What you say is exactly right. And, and one of the things about this process that makes me absolutely crazy is there's two things that are missing. One is the interconnection process. And then the second is whether the solutions coming out of one of these new capacity market designs meet and are consistent with state clean energy policies. So let's talk about the interconnection for a second. You know, as we look at the Invest Inflation Reduction Act and the, the financial incentives in clean energy that are coming in through the IRA, we should be seeing just an off-the-charts massive deployment of capital across this country. And the interconnection queue is one of the largest non-technical barriers to getting that money spent and getting clean energy deployed. You know, if we have to, uh, you know, and, and as I think about sort of, you know, my daughter and, and the, you know, the future of the planet, uh, we cannot lose the fight against climate change because we can't get interconnection studies done. <laughs> you know, that is, that is simply unacceptable. And yet we see this. It's not just a PJM issue. Uh, there's a, you know, a very good study saying that we have 2,000 gigawatts that's a huge amount of generation currently sitting somewhere in an interconnection queue across this country. And that projects are taking on average five years to get through the interconnection process. 
This is in addition to permitting and actually building the DARN project. So like, you know, we have this fundamental problem that the system that we design to connect new generation is not adequate to the clean energy transition. And, you know, and I respect that PJM didn't necessarily want to tackle that huge problem while it was also doing the uh, the sort of more mundane pieces of the uh, of, of the capacity market reform, but it misses this huge this 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 you know uh, key component of getting this done. And even PJM's own study, sort of looking at that 2030 scenario, says that if we could get enough new generation hooked up, it largely alleviates the worst of the reliability concerns. And so we just have to, as a society figure out how do we break through this really artificial barrier where we cannot get stuff built. We just got to build it and we got to get it connected. Uh, And so interconnection reform is, is to my mind, uh, just a huge issue that is left unaddressed through this process. Uh, And in fact, I'm not the only one saying this. There was a coalition of environmental groups who wrote to the board of directors of PJM in response to their initial letter and said, where's the interconnection reform? Uh, Because, you know, if we are telling that, if you're telling us, and and particularly when I was in my seat as a state regulator, here you have PJM telling states and everyone else, we need more resources on the grid. And so when the state shows up to bring new resources, whether it's whether it's storage, which is very effective capacity resource uh, or any other technology, including fossil technologies. And yet you get you get to the you go to get in line to solve this 2030 reliability problem. And PJM says, oh, sorry, the, there's no room at the end. Uh, so come back and see us in five years and we'll have a study for you. Like that is a fundamentally broken piece of this equation and and one that that you know I would really like to see PJM uh, and frankly I, maybe the leadership needs to come from FERC or Congress uh, to step in and say we need really fundamental reform we need to build out the transmission system even ahead of generators showing up uh, so that we're not we, we don't just have this you know five year delay in everything we're trying to do. PJM has a lot of uh, committees and groups and task force task forces, excuse me, that are established to address, tackle, find solutions to various challenges that exist in the market. And one of these task forces is called the Clean Attribute Senior Task Force, and it's looking at how clean energy market solutions may address the capacity market problems we're seeing. Could you talk a little bit about this task force? How is it coordinated with or not, or or, or aligned with the overall process that's going on around resource adequacy in PJM right now? Yeah, this gets to this question that we're asking our markets to solve. Uh, You know, the the, the cap stiff, as it's affectionately known, is about how do we make sure that whatever solution for reliability and economics that the PJM markets develop also meets state clean energy targets and private demand for clean energy. So what we effectively have is right now we have a, a you know clean energy investments it, it, it investment incentives through renewable energy credits through tax policies that are showing one set of price incentives and driving investment in clean energy. And then you have PJM sort of sitting over on the other side, continuing to run its markets in effectively exactly the same way to identify reliability solutions and resource adequacy solutions um, that continue to look only at economics and reliability. And, and so the cap stiff is all about how do we how do we actually get our markets to ask the question that society needs markets to answer, which is, What's the lowest cost suite of resources that maintains system reliability and meets clean energy demand? And in a lot of cases, that's coming from states who are mandating clean energy requirements. Uh, In a lot of cases, it's coming from private individuals or corporations who are asking for clean energy. And so the the capstiff is all about trying to get the market to help us answer that question. Um, and so I think if you sort of look again at what the, what, you know, this is, this is really is the acronym soup, but the CI, 
FP, the uh, Critical Issues Fast Path Process, <laughs> is talking. That's the main thing we've been talking about today. The main thing we've been talking about is asking the question, how do we make the capacity markets work better? But they completely ignore the fact that we're asking the markets to come up with a reliable solution that has to meet state laws and that has to meet voluntary demand for clean energy. And so if I have a critique of the PJM process thus far, it's that the the questions about how we bring clean energy into our long-term planning processes need to be front and center in all of these various processes, along, of course, with the with the interconnection stuff we talked about before. Okay, so the $10 million question at this point is, we've got this process, the critical issue, fast path. Uh, it is supposed to deliver some sort of proposal to the FERC uh, by October the 1st. Given uh, all of these moving parts, given that we're not looking at interconnection issues or PJM and the stakeholders really aren't focused on that at this point, given the inherent messiness of the PJM stakeholder process, do you see a solution uh, reasonably coming out of this process by October? I think the answer is going to be yes. Now, to me, the question is actually less about whether they, and you know, it may be delayed by a month or two, but in, in, in FERC and PJM world, October, November, December, it's all effectively the same. The question is, is it going to be, you know, on a 10-point scale where, where one is status quo and 10% is the most wonderful market design you've ever seen that meets every, every state's clean energy policies, that uh, ensures perfect reliability uh, and puts a unicorn in every kid's bedroom, uh, you know, where is it going to be? Is it going to be at that one level or at that 10 level? And my sense is where they are right now, and given this incredibly tight time frame that they're working on, I think they're going to be shooting for that three to five. So something that is a definite improvement over the status quo, but leaves a lot of issues left to be answered uh, for future proceedings. Um, and, you know, and it's not entirely clear what happens when this stuff gets to FERC, because these are very controversial issues. Um, and, you know, and I really worry that if PJM comes up with a bunch of um, uh, capacity market reforms that completely ignore the issue of whether the reliability solution they're developing is simultaneously feasible with state clean energy policies, you set up this very interesting dilemma for FERC where they're looking at potentially approving a uh, process that is, you know, not going to uh, not taking into account state laws. And, and, you know, I think that'll be a, just a fascinating development to see what happens. But, yeah, I would say I think given the focus and the need to address these things quickly, we will. And just to put it in context, remember, the reliability issues that PJM is identifying come up in the 2028, 2029, 2030 and beyond timeframe, which is both five to seven years from now. So seems like a long time. But it's also incredibly quick if we need to be readjusting our deployment of capital um, because, you know, generation resources, even ignoring the interconnection queue, take a long time to get built. So if we need to get state laws changed, if we need to get uh, investment signals changed, if we need to have private capital responding to those investment signals, it is absolutely critical that we set up that paradigm as soon as we possibly can. Abe, thank you very much for talking. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Today's guest has been Abe Silverman, Director of the Non-Technical Barriers to the Clean Energy Transition Research and Policy Program at Columbia University. Check out the Climate Center for Energy Policy website for our archive of more than 140 podcast episodes, as well as research in upcoming in-person and virtual events. To keep up with the center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website. Our address is kleinmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.